Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Obamacare back in danger. So, Richard, uh, at the time that the Supreme Court made its big Obamacare decision a couple of years ago, that was largely considered at the time to be the end of the story as far as the ACA and the, and the courts went. And we've, we've had Hobby Lobby since then, but Hobby Lobby was a case that no matter what the ruling wasn't going to really affect the structural integrity of the program one way or the other. Now we have this case recently decided by the D.C. Circuit in which it was held that the subsidies provided through Obamacare's exchanges were not allowed in cases where the exchanges were set up by the federal government because the enabling language specifically referred to exchanges set up by the states, which I believe only 14 states in, in Washington, D.C. set up. Mm-hmm. Um, all the other cases, feds had to do it for them. And some of Obamacare's defenders are saying, look, we clearly didn't mean for it to be just the state-based exchanges. That wasn't the intent of the law. Uh, how does that argument hit you, Richard? Oh, my God. This is such an absolute can of worms. I mean the, <laughs> the first thing I want to do about this thing is to make a very simple observation uh, that this is a tragedy in transition. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with this lawsuit, notwithstanding the fact that I ultimately think that it's correct. And what's the source of the tragedy? Well, we introduced this program, and we now find that the minimum essential benefit standards are so far above what markets require that we lose a very large number of people. Nobody's quite sure exactly how many, but it's in the millions, who are then cast adrift. And the theory was that they would not be burdened with their what the president called inferior plans, they would now get these wonderful benefits under the exchange. um, And the only way that it would drive it would be through the subsidy. What happens is they now try to go on these exchanges, and it's a majority of people probably who are on the federal exchanges. Uh, Places like California and New York have state exchanges, so this number of states doesn't quite give you the base on population. And now they're told that they could well be shut out as well. So what we do is we have a system which knocks them off one horse and doesn't put them on the other. And I regard this as an absolute tragedy. I mean, it's the kind of classic transition game in which you get hurt two ways and nobody claims responsibility for it. Everybody always assumes it's the other guy. Now, how does it come about, I think, is the next question. And the answer is, if you look at the statute, unfortunately, it is clear. And it does say exchange shall be established by the states. Forget the motivation for that. Uh, This comes in the Senate bill. It goes into the House. There's a lot of concern about this. But remember, given the fact that uh, Scott Brown was then elected as senator from the state of Massachusetts, it turns out that you can't do anything in conference to alter the bill because then when you go back to the Senate, you could be faced with a filibuster. So people who were aware of the particular danger could do nothing to fix it but hold their breath. Back it goes to the Senate and it gets confirmed in that particular area. So at this particular point, you then have all of the issues about how it is that you engage in statutory um, interpretation, which raises messes of its own. Well, I want to talk for a moment a little bit more about the, the federalism issue here because you said you said it a moment ago, forget the motivation. But let's talk about the motivation for a minute because it seems pretty clear that the legislation actually did intend to limit the subsidies to states that set up exchanges because that was their lever for getting them to do 
what Washington wanted them to do, similar to the, the Medicaid provisions that were struck down by the Supreme Court in the first Obamacare case. And this isn't unusual. I mean there are any number of areas, whether you're talking about drinking ages or, or educational standards, where the federal government, because it lacks the mechanism to directly compel the states to behave a certain way, finds this backdoor by conditioning federal money on the, on the behavior that they want. Can you give us a sense of the of the legal landscape there? How far is too far? Are there points beyond which, even though it's not direct coercion, the feds cannot apply that kind of financial oh. pressure to the states? Oh, look, this is a problem both of A, what was meant, and then B, whether or not it's legal. And let's sort of take them in two parts. One of the things that is quite clear is if you actually look at the Hallbeck opinion um, and the work by Judge Griffiths and then the dissent by Judge Edwards, who takes after him in a big way, um, neither of them point to much by way of legislative history. I went back on the website and I checked what Michael Cannon and Jonathan Adler wrote, uh, one from Case Western, that is Adler, and uh, Cannon from the uh, Whatchamacallit from, from the, Cato. Right? From Cato and so forth. And you know, they come up with one sentence from Max Baucus, which makes this point. Um, so what happens is it is perfectly obvious that if you wish to make this as an incentive argument, this is a fine way to do it. And there's no question that the Medicaid mandate was done on exactly those terms. It said to the states that if you don't take on this particular stuff, this new program that we're putting through for which we're paying most of the money, that's the carrot. The stick is we're going to knock you out of all your Medicaid contributions, including those for base programs that you've enjoyed for years. So you're going to get truly wiped And the Supreme Court said that goes too far. But as some of the left-wing critics have said with a fair bit of force, it's awfully strange that you're trying to make this um, incentive argument that nobody bothers to talk about it. Um, And indeed, it was not talked about very much at the time of passage, um, although it was probably pretty well understood that this was what was being stated there uh, because people were aware of the language. And people like Zeke Emanuel, for example, when he spoke about that time shortly after the bill passed at NYU – Announced there with somewhat of a you know a gloat in his voice. He said, "Oh, we got our wonderful legislation through. I wish we had done it all through the federal stages instead of having this incentive system for the states." And you know, then later in 2012, uh, Jonathan Gruber, who was one of the architects and an economist from MIT, is heard to be exhorting some of the state delegations, "For God's sake, you better sign up for this program. Otherwise, you're going to have to forfeit the subsidies." So we we get this kind of stuff, but it isn't a consistent thread and. So what you do, therefore, is you have Harry Edwards in defense start saying this is just all nonsense, which is, I think, clearly overstated. Uh, You get Griffiths on the other side not relying on it. What he does, in effect, is rely on a different proposition, not the unconstitutional condition stuff, uh, but essentially the statutory interpretation stuff. There is a case out there from 30 years ago called Chevron USA against the National Resources Defense Council, an environmental group. And in it, Justice Stevens sets out in in horrific terms, it's a bad opinion, a two-part test which says that if the language is clear, you just follow the language. If the language is not clear, you then defer to the agency, which can lead you to immense flip-flops between administrations on how things are going to be done with certain of these statutes. So the question we then have to ask is, since this is a big regulation uh, to which Chevron clearly applies, is, is it clear or is it not clear? 
And Griffiths is not, by the way, a, a libertarian judge. He's a kind of a by-the-book conservative judge who has ruled in many cases in favor of the government in areas where a libertarian would go quite the opposite direction. And he sits down there with his blue pencil and he reads this thing and he says, you know, I just can't believe that on behalf of the state by the federal government when the state refuses to do it is the same thing as established by the state. And then what he does is he kind of looks at all the things that might be able to deflect you from that and says, you know, I can't take into account overriding grand purposes to increase the level of health care. A statute is a compromise. I have to respect the means chosen as well as the ends chosen. And if the text is clear under Chevron 1, I end. Harry, I mean, I think he was unfair to Griffiths, who's a fine gentleman. I disagree with him on many issues, to say that this was just a thinly veiled attempt to wreck the system. I think, in fact, um, Griffiths was quite uncomfortable with the decision that he made for the reasons I mentioned. There so many shattered expectations that you really feel unhappy. Uh, but he was a rule of law guy. And so what Edwards does is announces that it's all nonsense, that's his word, not mine, uh, because of the overriding intention, which is inconsistent with the Chevron doctrine if the meaning is plain. So how plain is plain enough is obviously a huge question because if it's plain enough, uh, then you just read the statute. And if it's not plain enough, you give the administrators the nod, which means that if the administration of the Republican who may be elected for 2017 thinks, you know, this isn't right, uh, it then flips over. And indeed, one of the rules that we know with respect to this stuff is that the Chevron flip-flop is perfectly okay. You do not have to abstain while you're flipping over. There's a case called Brand X done by Justice Thomas saying in an administrative state where you have deference, uh, we can say not A today and we can say A tomorrow. One of the reasons why I so dislike the Chevron rule, uh, which allows you all that discretion, is that it intends to encourage judges to say that statutes are never clear when often they are, and then it encourages an enormous amount of administrative politics as administrative changes come, and they are simply enormous in the scope of what is going on. Walk us through the implications here, Richard. This case is almost certainly headed to the Supreme Court. The same day that the D.C. Circuit fanned against the administration, the Fourth Circuit held the opposite. If the court, if the Supreme Court rules that these subsidies through the federally run exchanges are impermissible, what are the implications for Obamacare? What does that mean for the future of the program? Oh, my God. I mean, it's so dreadful to contemplate. Look, I, there's, I have thought this program was a complete mistake from the beginning. One of the reasons I thought it was a mistake is that transitions like this are very difficult and innocent people are going to be caught in a crossfire that they do not understand. Uh, so what will happen is it will be declared as unconstitutional. You will then have to answer the retroactive question. What about all the money that have been collected under an, uh, one of these programs? What about coverage under these programs? Do people really have to go into a void or is it only going to be effective prospectively? If it's prospective, what does that mean? Do you finish out this year and do the next year or do you simply say you're covered for accidents now uh, now what you've done is you've killed this regulatory apparatus but the rest of the statute's still in place and you still have all these minimum essential benefit stuff so people can't enter back into the market and even if they could they'd have to get both federal and um, state kinds of um, benefits in order to cover the situation which is going to be a nightmare so at least just on the transitional stuff it's an unmitigated disaster in terms of the way in which this will affect lives of thousands upon thousands of people. 
Well, what's then going to happen is people are going to come to the Congress and they're going to say to the Republicans, how can you tolerate all of this? There's just too much human suffering. And there will be a lot of angst on the part of the Republicans because, frankly, many of them will agree that none of these people created this mess and now it's up to us in Congress to do something about it. So they say, sure, we'll do something about it. Uh, but then it's going to be, yes, we'll do something about it. But, you know, you've got a bunch of things in this statute which we really don't like. Like, you know, you're putting this contraceptive mandate in places, and we're rather upset about that. So you want us to bend on this. We're willing to do so. But you now have to bend on the following. You figure out the things. Well, remember, Congress is a they, not an it. And different Republican groups and different Democrat groups uh, from different conservative and liberal states will each have different things on their plate. And so that what's going to happen is you're going and not get a clean, let's just reverse the decision, you're going to get this incredible bargaining mess as to which way this thing will go in the midst of some kind of a political campaign. And just for fun, you know, somebody retires or dies on the Supreme Court, and now you got a Supreme Court nomination, which is staring you in the face with another level of uncertainty as to what's going on. Uh, so I, you know, my own view is that the correct answer in this case is these guys clearly exceeded their mandate when they did this. And I think they knew that they did it. I think that they did it because they did not want to make the program an instant fit which is what it would have been if they come out the day after it's constitutional and say, oh, by the way, uh, 60% of the United States population can't participate. And now we got some states in and some states out. What a mess this is going to be. So I understand why they're doing it, it to some extent. The problem is, you know, if you just do the statutory construction, uh, the arguments that they make are bad. When you get to the Supreme Court, what's going to happen? Well, I mean, there are two ways to think about statutes. One of them is what you call, you know, you read it, and if it's plain, you understand it. Then there is a pragmatic tradition out there which says, if a statute produces results that are un absurd, then it's unclear. And so, therefore, the plain meaning rule doesn't apply. Um, on that side, Breyer is actually the one who's most willing to run roughshod over the textual language of a statute when it suits his particular purposes, and he will get the three female justices to go along with him. On the other side, I mean, I think the four people who voted against Obamacare will vote against this. And so this brings us back to our chief justice again. And on these kinds of issues, I mean, he is a fiat justitia ruat kylum kind of guy. May justice reign even if the heavens fall. And my guess is, smarting from all the attacks he took when he drew the fatal distinction between taxes and penalties and got that all bolstered up in my judgment for a variety of different reasons, my guess is he'll go along with them and it will be five to four. And if you thought you heard something with respect to Hobby Lobby, uh, this is, as you said, this goes to the structural integrity of the program. Everybody knows perfectly well that nothing happens to Obamacare as a general program if Hobby Lobby is not allowed is allowed not to cover four types of cons of contraceptive devices. But all the arguments about firm autonomy have never carried the day in the modern era as against the case for government regulation. So it's going to be a cacophony. And, you know, frankly, what I want to do is I want to run for cover. Um, I, I saw to some extent all of this stuff coming and it, it's like you're caught like a deer in the headlight. You see this thing bearing down on you and there's just nothing you can do to escape it. If you want an analogy, it's kind of like the pension programs that are going to go bankrupt in the United States. Everybody knows there's something deeply wrong and nobody could agree as to what should be done to solve it. May we do better than we've done in the future.
All right. Well, I'm sure for precisely those reasons, this won't be the last time that we have this conversation. Thank you, Richard. <sighs> Thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.